as, as you think about it, what I like about how you think about these things, Matt, is it's it's very real world grounded. It's not kind of pie in the sky. It's like, no, this is kind of, you know, then the good person, the better person who's was still there leaves and now they're calling back. Like that is what really happens or the way that you're poaching, if I could use that word, right? Because that's a vulnerable company and it, it benefits you. A couple other effects of this professional services firms really mm-hmm. seem to get this. So you think about like an accounting firm as an example, somebody's not going to make partner and, but they treat them very well on the way out because mm-hmm. that person's going to be the treasurer, maybe even the CFO at a client company who's going to hire them for audit or tax services. Those companies seem to get it really clearly because they understand the alumni effect mm-hmm. of what happens. Other companies less so. And, and yet, you know, a very natural landing spot would be to go to a competitor. A natural landing spot would be to go to a customer. A natural landing spot would be to go to a supplier because you're all kind of pretty closely in the same ecosystem where those skills would be highly transferable. That industry knowledge would be very valuable. And then it becomes, so what was it like at XYZ Company? Mm-hmm. Well, either it's going to be, you don't have enough time for me to tell you how terrible it was, or, you know, it wasn't, it was a great run. You're kind of ended, maybe not the way I would have hoped, but you know what? They really took care of me. It's a company I would refer a friend to, you know, that's the other thing you get phone calls from people like, Hey, Bob, I saw you used to work at numerator. You know, what can you tell me about the company? Mm-hmm. Well, that can go in two directions. And, you know, I refer people to numerator for what it's worth, but, but I could trash numerator if I wanted, but in, in basically negatively bias the talent pool that's coming to them. I mean, it doesn't seem like you have to be that enlightened, that strategic of a thinker. And yet being on the receiving end of phone calls of people are like, Hey, we're taking an action next week. And you know, I need to find some resources. It is amazing. The, lack of resources that the HR professional, and this is a, this is something I'd like for you to talk about for a minute, how this works in the real world. The HR professional, it seems, gets to pick the firm or the resources that they, they get to, to provide as a benefit to mm-hmm. the departing employees, but they're given a budget by the CFO. Yeah. And therefore they have to operate within, you know, the constraints of the budget that they're given and, and don't always get to do what I think they believe is the right thing to do, but kind of, this is what I have to work with. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, one more wrinkle to your previous comment. Also think about the IP. If I didn't leave on good terms, I'm much more open to be sharing what the secret sauce of the company was that I just worked at. And that could be a competitive advantage that may not be contractually obligated to be kept confidential. And even if it is, Bob, good luck enforcing that agreement when you move somewhere else. So you have, whether it's competition clauses or confidentiality clauses, I get it. Information is ubiquitous, but you can choose to create incentive for people to share the information or make that a harder process to cut through. I've certainly joined companies where I've been asked about confidential information from my previous employer and said, I am not able to share that information because I have a good mm-hmm. relationship. I want to maintain that relationship. Mm-hmm. I have respect. They treat me with respect. I apologize that I can't break confidentiality. And I've been tempted in some situations too to provide it, though I haven't because of the way I was treated in some situations. Yes. So that aside, I think you're right. But I think the, the bigger issue about the HR involvement in the activity is that a lot of times, Bob, they're not involved to the calls been made. 
So the reason the CFO oh, yeah. has the budget is because the CFO and the CEO and the board or potentially other executives made the decision. HR is tasked with executing the plan because that's where the tough work is done. And I have a strong opinion about this. I've been in both situations where the message came down from upon high and Matt, you need to make this happen. And I've also been brought into the conversation early on and asked for my counsel. I clearly perform the latter because it allows me an opportunity to really understand the activity and potentially present some alternatives beyond just, we need to lose this many FTE by this date, or we need to lose this much wages by this date. Um, now, in the scenario you've presented where the information comes from the CFO and I'm given a budget, I don't have a lot of wiggle room in order to make a, a case. But in some cases, Bob, I still have made a case and said, okay, you've given me a budget of X. Let me tell you how this activity should be done. Let me tell you what it will cost. And let me tell you why the incremental investment is a strong ROI given the risk that you're going to incur to not do this. Now, this is where the HR professionals of 10 years ago really struggled. And I was probably in a unique subset of the professional of HR that was comfortable in one, building a business case and two, pushing back on a CFO or a CEO because I didn't feel a sense of, I never felt pushed around in most cases. And if I did, I felt enough confidence to push back. And that was appreciated in the companies that I worked with. Not all CHROs or HR executives have felt that way. And not frankly, all of them are treated that way. So mm -hmm. I've definitely been in situations where they thought HR was a task taker, a list taker, an administrator. And the expectation was HR does when we say. In those cases, I generally leave the organization because mm -hmm. it's not a good fit for my particular skill set. Now, what you've seen over the last 10 years is the HR profession has certainly graduated and certainly post-pandemic, you see HR yes. being much more strategic yes. because of the, the frequency of, of job activity. That being said, there's still a requirement for HR to be able to develop a strong business case for a decision that could include outplacement, professional support, et cetera, et cetera. I'd be building that business case with my CEO, CFO and saying, okay, you gave me X dollars. I need a bit more and here's why. And let me walk you through the reasons why that is. Uh, empathy is what we started this conversation with. So I'm going to tie it in again. CFOs are in place to manage risk. That is their job. They're there to manage the financial risk and health of an organization. As a consequence, and knowing that in most cases, I'm building a business case that talks to risk. I'm talking to reputational risk. I'm talking to financial risk. I'm talking to productivity risk. I'm speaking in their language. I'm not saying people will be less un people will be unhappy if we don't do this. I'm not talking about engagement. I'm not talking about turnover. Although those may be very valid reasons, I'm talking to my stakeholder in the way that they would best resonate with my message. And I'm putting it into language that they can understand and appreciate. So as I'm building that business case, I'm understanding, well, this CFO really responds to a risk message. Let's make sure we sprinkle that in early and often. So when we're presenting the case that they understand why this is important. At the end of the day, we all should be working together for the betterment of the firm. I think so. Like put self-interest aside, we're trying to look after people in an activity who are going to lose their jobs. What I actually want isn't really as relevant. I want people to be looked after and the CFO should want the same thing. But there's also a natural healthy tension that has to exist between HR and finance. If mm -hmm. HR and finance are always agreeing on things, the CEO is in a tough spot because then they have to be the person that says no sometimes and they don't want to be that person. So HR and the CFO have to have that natural, healthy, respectful, professional tension but in my experience, more often than not, that tension can be resolved when you present evidence-based cases for the things that you want to do. I really, really, really resonate with the speaking the language of the CFO, um, you know, whether it's in the 
career coaching that we do with individual clients or in mm -hmm. the context that you just spoke about, that is such a big thing for people to understand is how can I communicate this message in the language, in the terms that the receiver is best able to receive it and understand why ultimately it's in their best interest to do this, to, to what we're trying to, to share with them and potentially convince them of. And as you said, you know, the, the tide has definitely started going in the right direction for HR executives to speak the language of business. And, you know, that's the kind of the coveted seat at the table, you know, thing is, is it, that's what it's all predicated on is, are you a strategic partner who speaks the language that the CEO and the CFO are having their conversations in? If you can do that. And as you say, you know, the pandemic, in, like in so many things, was the great accelerator to doing that because all of a sudden the first phone call the CEO needs to make is to the HR executive. Like, People can't come to the office anymore. What are we going to do? Like, we, we can't stop being a business. You've got to help me figure out how to keep this thing together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if there's a benefit or one of the benefits of the pandemic, I think that would, would be one in many, many cases. No, I totally agree. And I think that the role of the CHRO really is to be the counsel for the entire executive team. And you have to be able to switch back and forth and talk to the CFO in their language and the CTO in their language and the CEO in their language and the CMO in their language. And that's the job. And the reality is, I think personally, I'm very biased, Bob, that the CHRO role is the toughest job aside from the CEO's job on the executive team, because you have a huge mandate and you have no power. All you have is influence. So if you can't influence your mandate's not going to be realized and you're not going to be very effective. Right. Whereas other functions like the COO, the CFO, they generally have more teeth to their, to their regimes. And as a consequence, it's easier to get things done when you can hold dollar values and resources over people. HR <laughs> doesn't have that ability. They simply have, I need you to do this because it's the right thing to do. That's a tough argument to make when things like self-interest or the financial business case or the broader macroeconomics come into play, that puts the CHRO in a tough spot to build that case. It's not easy, but it is possible. And that's why it's important that when you're in organizations that you're building relationships before you need to cash in. It's like having a marriage, Bob, like you build up that, that, that positive bank of goodwill and relationships. So we need to withdraw from it at some point. You have something in there. If you haven't invested in that and you need to withdraw, don't be surprised when you hear no. Okay, so this this is related, believe it or not. So a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to interview Ed Bastian, who's the mm. CEO of Delta Airlines. There was not an industry, along with hotels and restaurants, that were hit harder than airlines with the pandemic. They were burning up a hundred million dollars a day. Wow! When on March the whatever in 2020, and they ninety thousand employees. He was committed because core to his value is what he calls the virtuous circle. You take care of the frontline people. The frontline people take care of your customers. If the customers are taken care of, the investors are taken care of, which yields great returns, which allows them to reinvest in the business to take care of the frontline people and around it goes. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they told people, look, obviously planes aren't going off the ground anytime soon, but we value you. We value your contribution. We want you to continue to be part of the Delta family. We're willing to continue to pay your benefits. Mm. And 
you have your job back whenever this thing is over and nobody knows when it's going to be over, but whenever it's over, you've got your job back and there'll be no break in your benefits in the interim. Mm -hmm. What we are asking is if you can, you know, take a pause on your salary, use whatever money the government's providing to you. But if, if, if we can meet in the middle and do something more strategic instead of just, you know, we just cut $70,000 jobs, 70,000 jobs. Half of Delta's workforce took the deal. Half right. of them took, because they are bought into the leadership, the culture of what it means to be a Delta. And they were willing to wait it out with them at some very significant personal cost. So when you think about as you say, with the marriage and making those deposits, because Ed needed to make a huge withdrawal mm. in May of 2020. And a really large swath of his workforce stood by him and said, yeah, I'm in this for the long haul and I'm not going to be transactional and run away. And, you know, Delta is obviously doing extremely well now that, you know, the travel um, demand is back in the record levels. So, you know, there's a big public company that everybody knows where, you know, when we talk about people are our most important asset and we're a family here and all the things that people say on their websites. But when push really comes to shove, and for me, this becomes the definition of integrity. Are you really walking the talk? Mm. Thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's a great example of an organization that gets it. And it's not easy to cut checks when you're not having revenue come in the front door when that's a big driver of your business. And when you're publicly traded and you're having to go to shareholders and explain to them why you're upside down with your expenses. That's not an easy chat to have. And it requires a lot of courage. And I'm confident that as he made that call, he had people selling him. That's a bad decision. I'm sure he had people pushing back and saying, you need to not do this. You need to protect cash and, and get take, hoard it away for a rainy day so we can better position ourselves to be competitive on the other side of this. And I'd be curious to see how their results compare to their competition. I'm willing to bet, friendly gentlemanly bet, that they're gonna perform better over the next three to five years because of that, because they're not gonna to have to go out to the market and find the levels of talent that the other industry is going to have to do. I mentioned before, the demographics, Bob, are real. The one thing I love about demographics is that it's the best, closest thing that we have to a crystal ball. 40-year-old people 10 years from now will be 50 years old. And 10 years after that, they're going to be 60. We know the general arc of people in their careers, and, and we know people will leave the workforce at some point in time. We know the population is aging. And if the workforce is shrinking in every industry, and of course, travel and transportation and the aerospace industry is no different, the organizations that treat their employees best are going to have first dibs at those employees. And the real issue that we're going to see in the coming years is going to be operational continuity. Organizations aren't going to be able to take planes off because they don't have the right staff in place. They may actually have the customer demand because they have good pricing and good service and good experience. But if you don't have pilots and you know flight attendants, you're not going anywhere because Transport Canada or in the United States, the equivalent of the Transportation Safety Board is not letting you leave that runway without a proper staff. So it becomes an operational business continuity issue. And that, of course, has a knock-on effect to your finances. So this requires a leader willing to look beyond quarter to quarter and see the long-term vision. I also would expect to see Ed in that role for quite some time. He's not going anywhere anytime soon because he's going to reap the benefits of that courage, and he should because he made the right call. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to move on to a little bit of career advice for a second, but if you could just put a bow on making the business case for taking care of people during a transition, like we've been talking about, what would just sort of the high level summary be? Yeah. Well, I think one thing I, we didn't talk about that I'd love to talk about is, Please. is data. So one thing I've been very mindful of is I know that when you're making the case for doing the right thing, there are people who will tell you that the right thing is the expensive thing. And we don't need to do that thing. And I, I, I expect that pushback. Mm-hmm. The, the obvious response to that is, let me show you, which is a really hard thing to say if you're making a moral argument. So I make a moral argument alongside of a business argument, and we track the activity and the outcomes of the activity. And the organizations that I've worked in, we've shown that attrition after activities where we've been had solid outplacement in place, the turnover does not increase at the rates it does when you don't have that in place. Mm-hmm. We've shown the solid business effect around productivity. It remains the same, if not increases after an activity, it doesn't decrease when you don't handle it well. Mm-hmm. Then you take that back to the business and say, okay, we went through this activity, we made this decision, we made this investment, we spent X amount of dollars in outplacement and professional health services and career transition. We spent this dollar. Did it pay back? And the answer, Bob, in those cases is always yes. Just a function of is it three to one, four to one, five to one, 10 to one, 12 to one. Mm-hmm. So by quantifying and using data, you're building the case for the next time so that if you unfortunately have to do it again, you go back and say, we did this this time. We're going to do it exactly the same way this time. In fact, we might even invest more in outplacement because we know it delivers a solid ROI when we do it right. Yeah. So let's not have the conversation about saving a dollar. Let's talk about investing in our business and in our people. Yeah. No, I th- thank you for, for having success metrics on the back end of this, which only feeds into your point about speaking the language mm-hmm. of the executives. Again, the right thing. No, the right thing is the right thing for the business and for the people. Those are not mutually exclusive objectives. No. Yeah. So um, just moving on to, to career stuff, because I, I always like to end on this. You know, if you were to go back and give career advice to 28-year-old Matt, and I know that's only been like three or four years ago, but if you were to do that, well, what advice would you, would you give a younger version of Matt with the benefit of hindsight? I was really lucky. I got some really good advice at 23 years old. <laughs> And I tell it to everybody that I talk to, and I, I use it in my own life every single day. So I was in my very first HR job. I was in an HR role, a maternity leave, 12-month assignment. I was backfilling an HR business partner role for a grocery retail business. I supported 10 or 12 retail locations, franchisees, and corporate stores. And I was very gung-ho at 23, 24. I was my first real corporate job. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder and do all the things and salary and title and offices Mm -hmm. and all the things, big dreams. And I had a coach who came to me and said, Matt, you have tons of potential and tons of enthusiasm. That's a really good start. That's not going to get you very far. When you have opportunities and you will have opportunities, always choose good experiences over money and salary they will take care of themselves. So ever since then, when there's an opportunity put in front of me, I don't ask about the salary. I don't ask about the job title. I don't ask about the job location. I ask, what's the opportunity that's in front of me here? And I've moved some weird places, Bob. Like I accelerated my career. The reason I was a Fortune 500 executive at 31 is because I said yes to things that most people would not say yes to. Mm -hmm. I went to Northern Canada. I went to the coldest places in Canada, the rainiest places in Canada, the hottest places in Canada. And said yes, because the job opportunity was something that I would learn on the job. I would get far more experience there than in a two-year MBA or a four-year bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. 
So for those who are considering the next move, and this can apply if you're 45 years old and you're asking yourself, what's the next chapter of my career? And you have two things in front of you. I get it. Money is easy. It's tangible. It helps. And I'm not trying to suggest through privilege that people shouldn't pay their bills and you may have obligations and all that stuff. But if you have something 50-50 in front of you and you can make it work financially, always choose the better opportunity to learn and grow in your skills, especially today, because we're moving increasingly to a skills-based model as opposed to an education-based model. Employers are hiring based on skills and experiences. They don't necessarily care where you went to school. So experiences over titles and and, uh, salary will serve you right more often than not. Yeah. Speaking of school, just really quick, I just recently read something. I might get my numbers a little bit wrong, but it was somewhere around 15% of the current crop of Fortune 500 CEOs Mm -hmm. went to an Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. Everybody else figured it out. Do you know what the number one school for most CEOs is on the Fortune 500? Tell me. No school. The number one school that Fortune 500 CEOs went to for their undergraduate degree is they don't have one. Well, if you needed another business case for why it's skills-based and not education-based and the um, proverbial paper ceiling, there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, you, you anticipated another question, which I appreciate, and which was the role of mentors. Mm-hmm. And, and then have you found yourself as you've progressed in your career taking on mentoring? So I have, a, I have a practice that I've followed for about the last 10 years that I'm a big fan of, which is I try and talk to one person every single week who's 20 years my senior and one person who's 20 years my junior. I have something to learn from each of those people. Mm. And mentoring to me takes on many different forms. So mentoring could be skills-based. It could be experience-based. It could be knowledge-based. I was talking to one of our friends, Whitney Johnson, yesterday, Bob, about mm. authoring and about the book writing process. I've been playing with the idea of writing a book now for five years in my brain. But now I'm finally taking action and saying, okay, let me talk to some experts who actually, in her case, written five books about to release her sixth. Let me talk about the pros and cons of self-publishing versus working with a publishing agency. Let's talk about the process psychologically and emotionally of going through the process of writing a book, which could take many months, if not years, to create. Um, I'm constantly looking for new sources of information, and I assume that people who have experience offer that. But I also, especially now where things are so disruptive, I also want to know what Gen Z and Gen Alpha think about the world today and how they envision the world for themselves five, 10, 15 years from now. Because if I'm going to build products and services for that generation, I should know what they want and think and feel and believe. So I think we're in a state now where lifelong learning is one of the top competencies. The World Economic Forum released the report in May. Look at the top competencies that are valued by employers today. Number one, well, that's analytical skills. Shouldn't be a big surprise. Number two is creative. And then number three is lifelong learning. Yep. Lifelong learning is an absolutely critical skill set. To me, my, mentoring is just another way to wrap that conversation. Um, yes, I do. I also pay it forward. So I, yes, I leverage people in my network, but I also try and think of them as mutual exchanges. As much as Whitney was very supportive in that conversation, I also made an introduction to yourself. And that's going to be useful to her as she moves throughout her career. And I've also introduced her to people within my network that would be valuable to her as she tries to position her next book. I try and find mutual benefit because I don't want to be somebody who's a net loss and a net taker. I want to be a net giver. And I start with, what can I offer you? And then if people say, what can I offer you back? Then I might ask for something. And that's usually how most of my mentoring relationships start. No, I, I love it. That that same model is what we teach clients just basically around professional building your professional network Mm -hmm. is go into with an attitude of 
how can I be of help to you personally or professionally? That's right. And what that can mean, and, and you just did a great job of illustrating it, is are there subject matter experts? Is there expertise they have? Are there relationships? Is there something that they're looking for? And the answer is almost always yes. Mm-hmm. If I can tap into my network and be a conduit to get you to somebody that's interesting and helpful to you, like I love doing that. That's a that's a, a net positive for me. And to mm-hmm. your exact point, and it's kind of Adam Grant, you know, give and take. It's like you want to be a net giver because sowing and reaping is a thing. Mm-hmm. When, when you sow into other people, it's not manipulative. It's not anything except the natural course of events that if you sow into other people, it creates fruit and it's okay to sometimes pick fruit. Agreed. Yeah. Right. So this has been awesome. I, I just, I appreciate so much, Matt, that you know, you, you've done such a great job of articulating both kind of the moral imperative for air quote, doing the right thing, but there's a real business case to be made and mm-hmm. how to communicate that business case on the front end. And thank you for not letting me skip past something, which is now let's review that business case on the back end. It wasn't just good ideas. And I I made you, I talked you into something like this had the impact, maybe even better than what we had anticipated. And the other thing I think that not only if you happen to be at that same company and need to revisit the topic, but it's an experience that you can bring to your next employer it says, I've been down this road. I can tell you how this is going to work out. I've got the data mm-hmm. point of this is how it's going to work out. So, again, this is the whole evolution of HR from moving past being soft and you know, kind of squishy and can't really put my hands around it to know I am an equal business partner with my other C-suite colleagues, speak the language and can drive the business in as meaningful I might argue, if not more meaningful ways, because you're helping shepherd the most important asset a company has. And in a sentence, treating people well is good business. There you go. Well, there's our summary. Matt, thank you so much. If people want to uh, learn more about you or follow your podcast, what's the best way to do that? Find me on LinkedIn. I live on that platform, as you know, Bob. So you can find me at Matt in VR on LinkedIn and thinking inside the box is the podcast. Awesome. There we go. So there's a, a QR code. Uh, that's all young there. Yeah. Isn't that cool? And the handsome man there. Um, but um, your podcast is phenomenal. You've got great guests. And again, what I like so much about what you're doing is you're not afraid to tackle the hard topic and really kind of get into not just the what, but the so what and now what of it. And, and that's advancing the HR and I believe advancing the business agenda. So just really appreciate everything that you're doing, Matt. Thank you so much for investing some time with us today. Thanks for having me, Bob. And thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, hope you have a great day. And again, please check us out at career.club. I know.